1: I'm Kathy with a K.
0: And I'm Kathy with a C.
1: And here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland is a city nestled on the southern shore of Lake Erie and boasts a rich and diverse history that spans over two centuries. Founded in 1796 by General Moses Cleveland. The city was initially established as a strategic trading post due to its proximity to the lake and its potential as a transportation hub. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Cleveland experienced a significant industrial boom, earning it the moniker The Forest City due to its numerous tree-lined streets. The city became a powerhouse of manufacturing, particularly in steel production, automotive manufacturing, and other heavy industries. This industrial prowess Led to a population surge with waves of immigrants flocking to the city in search of employment and a better life. However, like many industrial cities in the United States, deindustrialization and shifts in the global economy led to economic decline and population loss. In recent decades, Cleveland has undergone a revitalization thanks to investments in infrastructure, healthcare, and education, coupled with a burgeoning arts and culture scene. Today, Cleveland stands as a dynamic metropolis with a strong sense of community. But in 2005, one particular family that was drawn to Cleveland for educational opportunities ultimately proved their loyalties were not to the community or its residents, but rather to protecting their secrets. In 1995,
0: Rosemary DiPuccio, who went by Rosie, was a nurse at Cleveland's now-defunct Mount Sinai Hospital. She was fun-loving and athletic as a child, playing shortstop and pitcher on her softball team and competed in gymnastics starting at the age of seven. She was very compassionate and always wanted to help others, so becoming a nurse was a natural career path. Rosie was on an ER rotation when she met a handsome, young Palestinian-American doctor named Yazid Issa. Everyone knew him as Yaz. Yaz grew up in Detroit before the family moved to Cleveland in 1988 for him to go to medical school. As if Yaz wasn't busy enough with his studies, he and his younger brother, Faras started a beeper business together. They would eventually own a satellite TV company worth millions of dollars. Rosie and Yazid got married on September 11, 1999. The following year, they had a son, Armand, and their daughter, Lena, was born two years after that. Rosie loved being a stay-at-home mother. They seemed to have it all: a comfortable home, a loving marriage, and two beautiful children. But tragedy struck on February 24, 2005.
1: On the afternoon of February 24th, just after 2 p.m., Rosie left her home in affluent Gates Mill to meet her sister at a movie theater. Just a few miles from her home, other drivers noticed her black Volvo SUV. It was driving slowly through a school zone. But then it veered off the road and sideswiped another car before it drifted back onto the road. Because of how slowly the car was going, one of the drivers who witnessed the accident was able to get out of their car, chase down the Volvo on foot, open the driver's door, and bring Rosie's car to a stop. When first responders arrived at the scene, Rosie showed no signs of trauma, but she had shallow breathing, an erratic heartbeat, and was unresponsive. Paramedics rushed her to the emergency room at Hillcrest Hospital. When she arrived, the emergency room physician, Dr. White, was told she had reportedly been involved in a minor car accident, but he couldn't figure out what was causing her medical distress. Rosie's husband, Yaz, who was a 36-year-old emergency room doctor, was reached at home and told he needed to get right to the hospital. Yaz called Rosie's brother, Dominic DiPuccio, and told him Rosie was involved in a car accident and he wanted to drop their two children, 4-year-old Armand and 2-year-old Lena, off at Dominic's home on the way to the hospital so he could go be with Rosie. Dominic's wife, Julie, was at home when Yaz dropped the children off, and Kath, she noticed he was in such a hurry to get to the hospital because his daughter was not even fully dressed. The DiPuccios called the rest of Rosie's family and were also able to get someone to stay with their four children and the two Issa children so they could get to the hospital and be with Rosie as well.
0: When Dominic and Julie arrived, they learned that it didn't look like Rosie was going to survive. Rosie's parents were already there, her father was cradling her head, and her mother was at her side. Yaz, her husband, stood against the wall, rocking back and forth. When Dominic made eye contact with him, Yaz just shook his head. After 30 to 40 minutes of attempting to revive Rosie, Dr. White saw no signs of improvement. In a quiet, somber voice, Yaz told Dr. White to just call it, and he stopped resuscitation efforts. At 3.02 p.m., 38-year-old Rosie Issa was pronounced dead, but she apparently died from a fender bender that didn't cause any serious injuries, so an autopsy and toxicology tests were ordered. The following day, the Cuyahoga County coroner performed Rosie's autopsy. She confirmed that there was no indication of external injuries, and x-rays and MRIs showed no evidence of internal trauma. As a result, the coroner was unable to determine Rosie's cause of death and deferred determination until they received the results of toxicological testing. The initial toxicology screening tested Rosie's blood for signs of alcohol or drug abuse and signs of prescription drugs that she might have taken. However, these results did not reveal any unusual substances or elevated levels of any substance in her system at the time of her death.
1: Meanwhile, family and friends noticed that Yaz struggled to adjust to life without his wife, and he planned to hire a nanny to watch over his children when he eventually returned to work. He was very close with Rosie's family and wanted Rosie's mom to approve of whomever he hired, so he arranged for two women to meet with her before he made a decision. Ultimately, he decided to hire both candidates he'd interviewed for the job, a woman named Michelle and a woman named Margarita. As detectives were investigating what might have happened to Rosie, they were told that first responders found her with her flip phone clutched in her hand and open as if she had been making a call. They thought she might have been calling for help. One of her two last calls was several minutes long and was to a close friend, Eva McGregor. Her final call was to her husband, but that call was never answered. Eva sat down with detectives and told them Rosie called her on her way to meet her sister at the movies. Rosie said she felt really sick. They talked about Rosie and Yaz wanting to have another baby and Yaz's diligence at making sure she was taking her prenatal vitamins. Eva asked her what could be making her feel so badly that morning and Rosie wondered if it was possibly the calcium supplement she was now taking. About three weeks after Rosie's death, Yaz sat down with Highland Heights Police Detective Gary McKee for a routine interview and gave him a statement concerning his wife's death. During this conversation, the detective asked Yaz if Rosie was taking any medications or if she had any health problems. Yaz mentioned to Detective McKee that he and Rosie wanted to expand their family, so Rosie had been taking prenatal vitamins, including a calcium supplement. Detective McKee asked if any of the vitamins could cause an adverse reaction, and Yaz said, absolutely not. After they wrapped up this interview, Detective McKee asked Yaz if he could follow him home so he could get Rosie's prenatal vitamins. McKee said his boss told him to collect everything just so they could cover all the bases in this investigation. Yaz agreed, and Detective McKee followed him home.
0: When they got to the Issa home, Yaz went to the pantry and got the supplements and gave them to Detective McKee, who then dropped them off at the lab. The following day, Dominic's wife Julie called him and said that Yaz had dropped his son and daughter off at their house because he needed to leave town. A close friend of his had been injured in a car accident and he needed to go help take care of him. Dominic knew who this friend was, so he called the man to find out if he was okay and the man was fine. In fact, he didn't know what Dominic was talking about. He hadn't been in a car accident. After being unable to get in touch with Yaz for 24 hours, Dominic filed a missing persons report and assumed custody of his and Rosie's children. The day after Dominic reported his brother-in-law missing, Dr. Douglas Rohde with the Lake County Crime Lab tested the calcium capsules that were retrieved by Detective McKee. 56 of the 60 capsules were still in the bottle. As he began his inspection, capsule after capsule contained only calcium. It took several days, but after testing all 56 capsules in the bottle, Dr. Rohde found that nine of the capsules contained something else, cyanide.
1: You know, Kath, what was interesting is I was reading Forensic Files 2, and I was reading.
0: <laughs> can you read that?
1: I can. You had closed
0: caption on, right? <laughs> no, actually, I
1: didn't. <laughs> I was watching Forensic Files 2. I was watching an episode about this. And what the detective said was, even though this was many decades after the Tylenol scare in Chicago, their first thought was that this is what the calcium capsules were mimicking, right? In 1982, there was mass pandemonium in Chicago when people were killed after consuming Tylenol off the shelf. And it turned out somebody had been poisoning these capsules. So when you bought them and took them home, you would take one and die. And actually, you know what surprised me, Kathy? To this day, they've never charged anyone in connection with all of these deaths.
0: Wow. I did not know that. Yeah, I
1: didn't either. So as a side note,
0: (laughs) (laughs) as a side note, when I was in high school, you remember that gum freshen up? Uh Okay. I am sitting in our other friend, Kathy's kitchen. I put a piece of freshen up in my mouth and it crunches. I take the gum out of my mouth and I'm looking at it and the center, there's no juice in the center. It's just all white and crumbly, like biting into a vitamin C or something, but a a white vitamin C. And so I go, oh my gosh, there's a pill in this gum. (laughs) Now, I have no idea if it's possible the liquid could have crystallized or anything like that. What do I do? I just throw it in the trash. I take out the next piece and I call it good. <laughs> I didn't have my safety antenna. Up. No,
1: you did not. Anyway, so Detective McKee, this was his thought. Is this now going to be some major outbreak that we're going to experience in Cleveland?
0: Raymond Yorg, a fingerprint examiner for the Lake County Forensic Lab, examined the nine capsules to see if he could pull fingerprints. He was able to detect fingerprint ridges on three of the pills. Unfortunately, there were an insufficient amount of ridges to make any kind of meaningful comparison.
1: After finding cyanide in some of the calcium capsules, forensic pathologist Dr. David Dolanak with the coroner's office ordered a more elaborate toxicology screening of Rosie's blood looking for signs of poison. These tests revealed 9.1 milligrams of cyanide per liter of blood. Additionally, coroner investigators discovered cyanide in bits of vomit taken from Rosie's car after her accident. On April 22, 2005, almost two months after Rosie died, the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office determined that Rosemary Issa died as a result of acute cyanide intoxication. The police immediately declared her death a homicide. One week later, Dominic DiPuccio released a written statement on behalf of the family. It said, we are shaken, anxious, and confused over the implications of the coroner's findings and pray that we and the Issa family may someday learn to understand the truth and begin to heal. In an article in the Akron Beacon Journal by Stephen Dyer on April 26, 2005, the FBI and U.S. Secret Service were now involved in the disappearance of Yazid Issa. Kath, it was also revealed at this time that Rosie's brother Dominic filed documents in probate court to prevent anyone on either side of the family from touching any of Rosie and Yaz's joint accounts. In these documents, it actually stated that the DiPuccio family believed that Yaz was out of the country and his disappearance might have involved identity theft. And you know what I learned, Kathy, is that the Secret Service investigates identity theft and computer fraud cases.
0: You told me that when you did your research and I was actually shocked. I did not know that. And how impossible their job must be in this day and age. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Know?
1: According to police records, both federal agencies searched the ISA home on March 30th. This was just a week after Yaz left town saying he was going to go take care of a friend. What they learned is that although Yaz worked at Akron General Hospital, he was employed with a private physicians group that provided emergency services to the hospital. So he just wasn't a direct employee of Akron General. Three years prior to his disappearance, he was actually convicted of a DUI and required to complete a 28-day inpatient rehab. As a condition of keeping his medical license, he was required to take random drug and alcohol tests. After he left the country, he was actually called in for two tests, and he missed them both. As a result, his license was revoked. Shortly
0: after the determination that Rosie died by homicide the FBI located Yaz in Beirut, Lebanon. This was actually a smart decision on Yaz's part because the U.S. does not have an extradition treaty with Lebanon. U.S. authorities could not go get him, nor would Lebanese authorities send Yaz back to the U.S. Although the FBI couldn't go get him, he was being watched by agents and local informants.
1: Is that a euphemism for CIA? I would assume it is.
0: (laughs) Yaz was living it up in Beirut and the hit of the party scene. He had family money. He owned a successful business with his brother, Firos. So money was no object and he was having a ball. It was reported that he bragged to friends and neighbors in Lebanon that he killed his wife and got away with it. To the surprise of no one, he was acting brazen and arrogant and thought he was smarter than the average bearer.
1: <laughs> I can't do the Yogi impression, but you can. Yogi. There you go.
0: Boo-boo. Boo-boo. <laughs> <laughs> he even created an email account to taunt them. Listen to this, Kath. Fugitive at Hotmail.com. What an idiot. I know. I am not appreciating this gentleman. No. And I use the term loosely. Very loosely. The FBI had dealt with hundreds of fugitives like Yaz and we counting on the fact that he was arrogant enough to make a mistake.
1: A little more than two weeks later, on April 7th, 2005, Yaz called Dominic and told him he was in a really bad place. The reason he called Dominic is he wanted to make sure Dominic knew that he had nothing to do with Rosie's death. And Yaz and his family were very close to Rosie's family. She had a very large Italian family. They all got together all the time. The DiPuccios had invited the Issa family into their orbit. And so he was like, I did not have anything to do with her, but my attorney called me and said they had enough that they could at least arrest me. And I don't think I could get a fair trial because I'm of Middle Eastern descent. He said he was also afraid that he would be eligible for the death penalty, and he didn't want to put his family through that. Dominic insisted to Yaz, like, if you didn't do anything, you don't have anything to worry about. You just need to come home. He's like, Rosie's gone. You're gone. Your kids need you. Yaz's response was, You know, I can't do that. If
0: you're Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone. And so do you.
1: As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered.
0: And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation.
1: They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app.
0: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today.
1: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Shopify. Like Kathy and I, and you enjoy a nice glass of wine, but you're not a connoisseur, let Dracena Wines be your guide.
0: Dracena is the creation of Lori and Michael, a husband and wife team who both have science backgrounds. Michael is a food chemist and Lori was a microbiologist. So these two nerds did the hard work for us. (laughs)
1: And we mean that in the most complimentary way. Most complimentary way.
0: (laughs) My husband and I actually met Lori in Paso Robles. She was phenomenal and introduced me to her Cabernet Franc, which is to die for.
1: They actually specialize in Cabernet Franc, Rosé, and Chenin Blanc. And for the last 10 years, every vintage of their wines has received a 90-plus rating from wine enthusiasts.
0: That's no surprise. It's so good. The name Dracaena is the genus name of the Draco tree, and Draco was the name of their beloved wine So all you dog lovers out there got to buy their wine. (laughs) Because they donate to dog charities. And you will get 10% off if you use the code KILLER. And they have a wine club that's called The Chalk Club which I love. That's named after their dog named Vegas.
1: Right. Their second Weimaraner. Exactly. And that's because in Vegas, if you're betting chalk, you are betting on all the favorites. And they are taking the gamble that once you taste their wine, like Kathy with a C did, they will become one of your favorites.
0: Not only are their wines delicious, they're reasonably priced. So to make a purchase, go to DracenaWines.com. D-R-A-C-A-E-N-A-Wines.com.
1: And on this site, there's a link to their weekly podcast and weekly blog posts. And you'll also find links to all of their socials. Hey, who needs to learn to drive?
0: Seriously, who needs to learn to drive?
1: (laughs) Or which friend of yours needs to learn to drive so they'll stop using you as their personal rideshare service? But without the tips.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you live in the Southern California counties of Los Angeles and Orange, Premium Driving School can help. Their certified instructors will help you pass your permit test, learn how to drive, and get your license. And you'll be learning in a late model Mini Cooper. So that's fun. That's the best part.
1: Premium Driving School offers a number of packages, including behind-the-wheel driving lesson packages for teens and adults, and refresher driving skills lessons for mature and senior drivers.
0: Maybe I should have Dick and Laura go there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Those are Kathy's parents, and I think you're actually right. (laughs)
0: They could use it.
1: <laughs> lessons are available seven days a week and are based on each person's individual skill and ability level.
0: Premium Driving School is here to help you learn how to drive and become a confident and safe driver. And it has a five star Google rating. For more information, go to their website, learntodrivetoday.com. Learn the number two, drivetoday.com.
1: And with the code KillerD, D, they'll give you a 10% discount on your lessons.
0: How soon after he left or dipped
1: yeah. did... Um, oh my God, we didn't say he dipped. I know. That's okay, though. I apologize that's okay. to all of our listeners. She's not
0: sorry. I blame Kathy. She's not sorry. <laughs> and I'm not sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, it was so two... actually it was, it was pretty soon after. Yeah. Because I think you just said the date.
1: I did. It was my, two weeks. And yeah. I actually, not only did I say the date, I said two weeks after.
0: Okay, whatever. Yeah. So maybe I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> after Dominic filed a missing persons report, which was about three weeks prior... Detectives started looking deeper into Yaz's background. They discovered that he'd engaged in affairs since the beginning of his marriage to Rosie. And at the time Rosie died, he was not only having an affair, he was actually having two. And the two women were the women he hired to be nannies for his children after Rosie died. When interviewed by police, the two women, Michelle and Margarita, were unaware that Yaz was having an affair with the other one.
1: So they knew that they were dating a married man. They just didn't know they were dating a married man who was also having an affair with them and then another woman. too. That is correct. Okay.
0: They lived by very high double standards. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, who was a nurse at the same hospital where Yaz was an emergency room doctor, had been involved with Yaz for about four months. Before Rosie died, she told Detective McKee that Yaz told her he was very unhappy in his marriage and planned to leave his wife. Just 10 days before Rosie died, Yaz sent Michelle a gift of lingerie and a handwritten Valentine's card that read, Happy Valentine's Day. I can't wait to see you in this. I have my own selfish reasons for giving you this gift. Next Valentine's Day will be all ours. I love you with all my being. On the day Rosie died, Michelle told detectives that Yaz called her hysterical and asked her to come to his house to be with him. He said to Michelle, you will be the only mommy that my children will remember. Yikes. I know. The other nanny slash lover told Detective McKee that she was an employee of a company Yaz co-owned with his brother and had an on-again, off-again relationship with Yaz beginning four years prior. She said that she agreed to take care of his children after his wife died, and on March 17, 2005, about three weeks after Rosie died, Yaz called her while she was babysitting his children at his house. He told her that police were coming to get Rosie's medications. After Yaz gave Detective McKee the various pill bottles and left the house, Margarita told detectives that Yaz flipped out, screaming and cussing.
1: According to an AP article by Joe Malicia, almost one year after Rosie Issa died of cyanide poisoning, her husband Yaz was indicted on one count of aggravated murder with prior calculation and design. Cuyahoga County prosecutors said Yaz's motive was clear. He was having an affair and wanted out of his six-year marriage without losing his money through divorce. If convicted, he could be sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. Secret service agents examined Yaz's computer and found internet searches dating back to five months before Rosie's death with the words calcium, heart arrhythmia, and death. Apparently, calcium can cause heart arrhythmia in a small number of people, and Assistant Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Rick Bell said they believed Yaz planned to use this as his cover story. And in fact, Kathy, when Rosie was taken to the hospital, Yaz told the doctors and Rosie's family that she had been experiencing heart arrhythmia right before she passed away. And the FBI discovered something else. The day that Yaz dropped his children off at Dominic and Julie's house because he said he had a friend he had to go to because of a car accident, what really happened is that Yaz went to Detroit with his brother Feroz and two cousins. They dropped about fifty grand at a casino there, and then they disappeared. They turned up later in Toronto, where Yaz took a plane first to London, than to Crete and Syria before landing in Beirut. In October
0: 2006, eight months after Yaz was indicted in Ohio, the FBI learned through its local informants and international police that he was planning to take a trip to the island nation of Cyprus. On October 7th, Yaz went through customs and was promptly grabbed by customs agents who pulled him aside to check his travel documents. He didn't have documents bearing his own name and his appearance had changed dramatically.
1: Let me explain his appearance. Yeah. Initially, he was actually pretty much fully shaven on his head, didn't really have any hair, and he had a goatee and a little bit of a beard. Striking blue eyes, looked very like strong, masculine, handsome. The pictures that came out of Cyprus looked like he was a member of the 1970s Harlem Globetrotters.
0: Totally. You got a picture of Fro parted in the middle. And then flat on top and very bushy on the sides.
1: And he had a tank top on that like dipped low.
0: He looked like a hippie. He He just looked like a hippie. So his appearance obviously changed, but the U.S. had sent fingerprints from his medical license to the International Police Agency, Interpol. Despite his protestations that he was not Yazid Issa, fingerprints don't lie. After 17 months on the run, he was finally behind bars. Yaz was arrested on a charge of unlawful flight to avoid prosecution and would be held in Cyprus until U.S. authorities could extradite him to Ohio. His lawyers tried to fight extradition, but after two years, Yaz was brought back onto U.S. soil.
1: Kathy, Yaz had actually fought extradition with everything he had. But in the end, he actually agreed to a plea deal with the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office to come back willingly. Here's why. In May of 2007, his brother Firas and his sister Runa were both arrested on charges of aiding and abetting him while he was on the run. They were then also arrested separately on charges of siphoning $2.4 million from Yaz and Rosie Issa's trusts and estates. They're funding him. They're sending him money. And the feds knew it, and so they arrested them. Yaz agreed to return to Ohio if charges accusing his brother and sister of assisting him when he dipped were dropped. The, actually, it said that in the plea agreement. Dipped. Dipped. Exactly. It, it was weird. <laughs> and Yaz came home. He was escorted by two FBI agents. He arrived back in Ohio one month later on January 9th, 2009. After being returned to Cuyahoga County, Yaz appeared from jail via a video conference and pleaded not guilty to aggravated murder. The judge ordered a bond of million, stating the high amount was warranted because of the almost five years he spent on the run.
0: She was requiring them to come up with $7.5 million
1: cash. Yeah. At that point, they're probably like, you know what? He's more bothered than he's worth. Right.
0: (laughs) Exactly. trial began on January 25, 2010. Now this is almost five years after Rosemary Issa was killed, four years after Yaz was charged with murder, and one year after he stopped fighting extradition proceedings from Cyprus. In opening statement, Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Steve Dever told jurors that the now 41-year-old Yaz Issa was a womanizer trapped in a loveless marriage. He said Yaz was motivated to kill Rosie because he was afraid of divorce and it would cost him financially. When investigators closed in, he fled the country. Yaz's defense attorney, Stephen Bradley, called Yaz a loving family man, incapable of murder, and displayed photos of a smiling Issa family. The defense suggested that one of Yaz's mistresses might actually be the killer. The evidence against Yaz was entirely circumstantial and prosecutors knew they had an uphill battle convincing a jury that he was guilty of his wife's murder. There were several key witnesses in the trial, but the most important one of all was Yaz's brother, Firas, who was called to the stand on the second day of trial. Prior to beginning his testimony, Prosecutor Dever asked for Ross to acknowledge that exactly one year ago he had pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice and tampering with evidence in connection with his assistance in helping Yaz flee the country. Frost acknowledged that he provided his brother money and information to help him stay ahead of law enforcement. When asked about any other prior criminal history, Frost testified that he had also been convicted of robbery and multiple counts of theft. Now, obviously, Kath, this is the prosecution calling him and they know the defense attorneys have all this ammunition against this guy to impeach his credibility. So the prosecutor did the smart thing and brought it out on direct examination, took some of the power away.
1: And you know, what was funny is, Farras, when he was at the stand, he was dressed in a clearly very expensive suit, and he's a very distinguished looking man. But the prosecutor had him on the stand saying, well, I was convicted of robberies. I was convicted of theft, multiple counts of theft. But it was just so funny because you would not expect... It
0: was such a juxtaposition. ...with
1: a distinguished gentleman that he was trying to portray.
0: Mm -hmm. According to court records, Farras testified that on February 24th, 2005, the day that Rosie died... He was in Mexico when he received a call from his frantic brother about Rosie's death. Ferraz stated that Yaz had many girlfriends, including Margarita and Michelle, the two lover nannies, and he did not believe Rosie had any knowledge of Yaz's affairs. After Yaz's initial interview with Highland Heights Police Detective McKee, Feroz helped Yaz flee the United States. Yaz wanted to get out of town because he was concerned that people would find out about his extramarital affairs and that he would then be blamed for Rosie's death. Faras told the jury that Yaz denied having any involvement in Rosie's death.
1: On cross-examination, Faras told defense counsel that Yaz was a compulsive womanizer, both before and after his relationship with Rosie. Frost testified that prior to their marriage, Rosie and Yaz separated after Rosie learned that Yaz was seeing another woman. However, he won her back by vowing to stay faithful. Firas testified that after the couple married, Yaz continued to cheat, but he kept his affair a secret from his wife. According to Firas, Yaz was happy in his marriage and was a great father to his children. On redirect by the prosecution, Farras was asked to explain a January 13, 2009 telephone recording between himself and Yaz, who was in jail in Ohio at the time. During the call, Yaz asked Farras about paying an individual $35,000 to shut up and finding a couple of new witnesses that would basically throw the prosecutor off Yaz's track by making it look like somebody else had killed his wife. Farras testified that he just made up the witnesses as a ruse to draw attention away from his brother and move suspicion to his mistresses, but he said the $35,000 wasn't to shut somebody up, it just had to do with a 10-year-old dispute that Yaz had with a girlfriend. When Farras was informed that phone calls from the jail are recorded, the prosecutor asked if he had engaged in yet another obstruction of justice scheme. At this point, the judge advised Farras of his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. He invoked his rights and asked to consult with his attorney. Thirteen days later, he returned to the stand to complete his testimony. And Kath, prior to Firas giving his testimony, trial counsel discussed this matter in chambers, where the state disclosed that it did not intend to bring any further charges against Firas or their two cousins if Firas testified truthfully concerning the conversations with his brother. So, facing a perjury charge, Firas now changed his story. Here's a little bit how the conversation went. This is the prosecutor questioning him. Did you ever have an opportunity to talk with your brother about Rosie's death? Yes. What did he say to you? Well, the second trip, which he's referring to a trip he took to Cyprus, Faraz said that's when Yaz admitted he was responsible for Rosie's death. The prosecutor then said, what do you mean by admitted he was responsible? And Faraz said, I asked him if he was responsible for her death. And he said, yes. What did he tell you he did? he said he put cyanide in the capsules. Why are you here today to testify truthfully? And why is it important that you come here and testify truthfully today? Because if I don't, I'll be in violation of my plea agreement and I could face substantial prison time.
0: How's that for honesty? (laughs)
1: Boom. And honestly, I was watching court TV to see some of the live testimony. You could tell that the jurors were riveted on Feroz's testimony because for the brother to have been like, no, no, you misunderstood. He's a good guy. He was happy in his marriage. To, eh, told me he killed her with cyanide. Totally. They were just shell-shocked. Right. And focusing all their attention on him.
0: Farras testified that he enlisted the help of his cousin, Sam Kasim, who had experience smuggling fugitives out of the country, as one does. I don't have any cousins with those kinds of skills. Yeah, no, I don't. I have cousins that could build a house, sell a house. I have cousins that could teach, and I have cousins that can do some tech work, but I don't have anyone who can smuggle.
1: <laughs> I've got cousins who are Navy SEALs. He could smuggle.
0: Or he could probably smuggle. But he
1: wouldn't do it for me.
0: No, he wouldn't.
1: I have One that's a firefighter, mm-hmm. he could save us in a burning house, but that's not smuggling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you have more cousins than I do, but we're both screwed.
0: <laughs> so for Ross and the cousin, the smuggling cousin, Sam concocted a ruse to go to Detroit with Yaz to gamble, where he would cross the border to Canada. And as you know, Cap, this is how he explained his absence. He called Julie and said, oh, I'm helping a friend who's been in an accident. I got to take care of him. Right. Once in Canada, the smuggling cousin arranged for Yaz to fly to Lebanon with false identification where he would be taken care of. When Yaz landed in Lebanon, he assumed the name of George Khalifi. Now, here's what's funny, Kat. The prosecution actually called the real George Khalifi to the stand, and he testified that he lived in Beirut for the past 15 years and provided Yaz with several fake IDs and a place to stay in Beirut. Khalifi testified that Yaz admitted to him that he killed his wife. Yaz Issa did not take the stand in his own defense. On March 5th, 2010, after nearly seven weeks of trial, the jury reached a verdict. Guilty. Rosie's family knows that she solved her own murder. If she hadn't called Eva and told her that Yaz had given her calcium pills and that she felt terrible, no one would have looked at the capsules as potentially being involved in her death. So true. Totally. And one of the jurors who spoke with reporters after the verdict said that they were surprised about Yaz's demeanor. Apparently, he was stone cold the entire trial, even when photos of his wife and children were shown to the jury. No expression, no tears, no reaction.
1: Yaz Issa was sentenced to life in prison with parole eligibility after 20 years. At his sentencing, Rosie's brother Dominic read a statement on behalf of Rosie's children. To this great and honorable court, my name is Armand I am nine years old, and I am in the third grade. Rosie was my mommy, and I miss her terribly each and every Nice buns,
0: soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as fast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders—from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond
1: for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov/careers. Every day, my name is Lena DiPuccio. I am seven years old and in the second grade. Rosie was my mommy. And I miss her terribly each and every day. We are happy children and we love our new family. We love our new mom and our new dad and new brothers and new sister. But we are sad too, and sometimes it hurts so much that we cry. We hold our mommy close to our hearts and at night as we fall asleep looking at her pictures. We are sad that our dad's heart shrunk just like the Grinch's and one day he stopped loving us and caring for us. But we are happy and we are safe and in a loving home and our old daddy will not be able to hurt us anymore. So two things, Kath, watching this in court. One is that Yaz and his attorney had tissues and were wiping tears off their faces. But it was very obvious there were no tears there to wipe. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that the judge, as all of these victim impact statements were given, Rosie's parents got up, her sister's-in-law got up, her brothers got up. Every time the judge would say something to them. So for instance, Dominic had talked about what the children said and the judge had said, I hope their daddy can never hurt them either. Oh my God. Yeah. Or he said, I really hope we have peace. I really hope they never have to worry about that either. Wow. It was, and she was crying.
0: Oh, okay. Well, wow. Yeah.
1: I was really surprised. I was actually going to ask you about that.
0: I'm sure that judges do show emotion. But you they know.
1: don't verbally agree with them they, in court. No,
0: they usually let things go. Yeah. They don't they do when they're issuing a sentence give their own opinions. Right. They typically remain quiet when the victim impact statements are read.
1: Armand and Lena are now being raised by Dominic and his wife Julie, along with their four cousins, who they now think of as their siblings. They actually even called Dominic and Julie mommy and daddy. Yazid Issa's appeals have been denied, and he is currently incarcerated at the Ohio State Penitentiary. He will be eligible for release in January. Twenty twenty nine. Thanks for listening. As we promised you, Patreon would be available, and as of October first, it will be. Yay! Look for it. We'll have social media. Looking forward to all of you joining us and having more fun with us, meeting with us, listening to more episodes, hearing bloopers. bloopers. (laughs) (laughs) Why is it that we make so many?
0: I don't even know. (laughs) We
1: make way too many mistakes. We actually don't drink that much. (laughs) you know what i mean like it isn't like we're no it's not it's we don't get tipsy we're just making bloopers yeah we we're just blooper kind of people exactly let us know what you think about our patreon hit us up on instagram